Every single person that's here today, I could take up their whole hour talking about what they've done for my recovery. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that as hard as it is, but um, I can't not say something about this next speaker because he absolutely changed my life. There's a lot of people that were placed in my life early in my recovery that God placed there to get me to this man, and uh, I thought I had found out what Alcoholics Anonymous was all about. But like Mike Chase said, there was more, and I didn't know it. And uh, all I can say is thank you, Peter. Our next speaker speaking on steps four and five is Peter M. from Boca. My name is Peter, I'm a recovered alcoholic. Uh, grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, before we get going, uh, I want to thank Danny and, and his outfit uh, for being here. And, uh, uh, all I can think of, Don Johnson lives. I didn't want to put this in. I thought it was a little too flashy. He shows up like a Hawaiian escort or something. I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> thank Danny and the folks who put this together. This is a lot of hard work. So if we can just give it up for them for a moment. We got folks from Boca, we got folks from Deerfield, we got folks from Tampa, we got a guy from Staten Island, we got a guy from Miami. It's like the heads of the five families have finally come together. <laughs> and we got a lawyer here to defend all of us, right? <laughs> I'm feeling pretty much at home right now. God separated me from alcohol June 23rd, 1988. And I am a recovered alcoholic and I say that because I am and anything less than that would be falsely humble. Uh, a loving God separated me on the day of June 23rd, 1988. Uh, God willing, my final separation from alcohol. I had been off uh, non-conference approved dry goods uh, for a couple of years other than eating pills and drinking as much booze as I can get into me. Mike talked about the phenomenon called craving. Uh, but in June of 1988, I was left really at what was my bitter end, and that was homelessness and daily humiliation degradation. And uh, six treatment centers behind me. I tried Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew this didn't work. It was a cult. I tried my religious community. I knew they didn't want me. That didn't work. I figured God, my God, had it in for me. I couldn't go there. Uh, my family took me to therapists and all sorts of other doctors. Thank the good Lord they didn't medicate me like they quit to medicate today. Um, but I had a bottom, and I was met with my G.O.D., the gift of desperation, and where alcohol finally beat me into a state of reasonableness. My story uh, uh, was one of pretty much uh, hate and venom and contempt for anyone who seemed to be doing better than me, which meant I had hate and contempt for everyone. 
because every time I would look at myself in the mirror, if I could muster up that much courage, I really despised what was looking back. I knew inwardly I had missed it. Inwardly I had failed. And when was it going to end? And when Michael talked about the ide uh, suicidal ideations and trying to do that, I, I can identify with I think most of us can. I made a, a, what I thought was a sincere attempt to take my life in a, a flea bag motel in Staten Island, and God interrupted my death. And uh, in June of 1988, in the back of a hallway, I got up off the floor to go out and do it again, hustle up money to get a pint, and that's when I collapsed on the floor. And uh, Bill says how dark it is before the dawn, and I had no idea the road God was going to put me on within a few hours. And while I was going through that time, it seemed like it was really dark, but I have found out for, in order for us to walk into light, we need to experience some darkness first. I didn't know that then. I just felt like I was dying, and I pretty much was. If I live to be 100, I'll never be as old as the day I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous, certainly my seven treatment center, which wasn't the plan on June 23rd, 1988. My plea to God in that moment of collapsing on the floor in tears, knowing I'm done, that if I get a drink in me, I'm going to die, and if I don't get a drink in me, I'm going to die, I was at the jumping off place, what do I do? And so the very same God who I mocked at and spat at, and if you were a man who followed God, you were weak and cowardly, I turned back to that God, please take me from this, I don't want to die. And I was put in my seven treatment center. And uh, it was horrific. I remember being in, in detox and having to be hospitalized twice, uh, twice before, because I had these terrible times of det detoxing. And I kind of knew what I was in for. I had to die to self. And I was about to experience a whole bunch of, uh, of physical pain through this. The physical pain, most of us, I'm one of them, we will get through. Somehow, someway, we get through. But what was really frightening me was the bit of despair, the, the emotional bottom that I was in the middle of. And I saw no light at the end of the tunnel. But the last option for me was treatment. And maybe someone can stop the bleeding. There was a sincere desire, a powerful desire within me to stop drinking. There had been a powerful desire within me to stop drinking after my fifth treatment center, and I got drunk two days later. My sixth treatment center, I signed myself out, and I went in, went, okay, I got to stop. So what was going to change? I have a powerful desire to stop drinking, but what's going to change this time? Because I can almost do the groups in treatment. But there I was after uh, uh, this plea to God, take me from this God, I don't want to die. I found myself in my seven treatment center. And 10 days of laying in treatment, just like I assumed, the thought of drinking came along again. I was getting very thirsty. I had severe post-acute withdrawal syndrome, and I knew a drink would settle me down. If I can just get a drink in me, I can breathe. If I can get a drink in me, my hands would stop shaking. If I can get a drink in me, I can eat. My stomach would settle down. The sweating would stop. I could feel alive if I can just get a drink in me. Now where do I go? And if I was on the street, I would have gotten drunk. And only because I was locked up in this community called a treatment center did I not get out and get a, get a drink. And I could have signed myself out. I did that a couple of times, but something, this power kept me there. And what I've learned from an experience like that, very often when we're walking, chopping wood and carrying water, and God is pruning the tree and removing things from our life, we feel like we've been left abandoned by God, like we have the trials of Job again. And because something feels painful, I immediately interpret it as something is bad. 
But going through a detox was a wonderful thing that was about to happen to me. Didn't feel good. Being in treatment, again, felt terrible. The emotional bottom was awful. Everyone outside that circle could have said, finally, he's getting better. It didn't feel that way to me. And that can happen to us while we're in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and going through the step work where every belief system, every idea is being challenged. Big Book says, perhaps we've disturbed them on the question of alcoholism. If your sponsor is not disturbing you regularly, get another sponsor. <laughs> That's the idea. To question belief systems, page 27 says, ideas, emotions, and attitudes were once the guiding forces of the lies of these men are suddenly cast aside in favor of a new set of conceptions. I had to die to the self before the physical death. That's uncomfortable. I realized walking around in Alcoholics Anonymous, going through the big book Alcoholics Anonymous, that for so long, I was walking around with a case of mistaken identity. And how often with our prayer, we just check in with God. I hear all the time, I pray on the way to work driving. Not a good idea. What kind of relationship is that? It's like pouring your heart out to someone and they're texting while you're doing this. When I'm driving, praying to God, what kind of integrity is that? What kind of honor and worship am I giving? What kind of interior prayer am I doing? Seeking God in everything. Living in the presence of God, I can't do that while I'm praying and driving. I can talk to God while I'm driving, but prayer is something different. All these beliefs systems had to be challenged on me, and it was very uncomfortable. I have found where prayer flourishes is where it feels like the desert, where it's just me and God. And there's no distractions. There's nothing going on. In fact, my most intimate times with God over the last 28 years has been when there are no attachments, no employment, no money, no relationship, and it felt like the walls of life were crumbling in on me. And the only place I can turn to was my God and beg him for mercy. And something happens when we're in a place like that. There's no interruptions. There's no blockage. There's nothing. It's just me at God's mercy. I need to remember that when, when things are good, where I show up to God with bowed head and bended knees still. That would not be possible by just for me just go to meetings. I tried to got drunk on the way in and on the way out. And for some of us, it's good news, and some of us, it's bad news, but meetings alone don't treat my alcoholism. It's one side of a three-sided triangle. The sacredness of our fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a Band-Aid on an open wound for many of us. I'm one of them. The unity of this fellowship, the fellowship of the spirit, and the spirit within the fellowship. You walk in the door, and you feel you're at home with my kind of folks. We understand each other. We get each other. As soon as I say I'm alcoholic, you got me, and vice versa. But then we go home after an hour. We identify hopefully for an hour. We talk to each other for an hour. We meet by the coffee pot before and after the meeting. But then I need to get in the car with me and my alcoholism. And that starts talking to me. And it's all up in my mind because I'm not drinking. I have no phenomenon called craving going on. And what the mind loves to do is create illusions in my mind to keep me from the truth. And when we go through this work, we find that God will volunteer us to go to places we can't go to. How willing am I? And the third step, it says, you do with me as you wilt. You do with me whatever you want to do. Part of third step prayer. There's no reservation, no pushing back, non-negotiable. Take me like the wretch I am and remold the clay because I've made a mess of it. 
Well, we can say I'm ready to turn my will and life for the care of God. Sponsor, I'm ready to do it. I'll get on my knees. I'll, I'll memorize the prayer and sound real good. And soon I get up off my knees, I go right back into self-reliance. How often do we pray? How often do we write inventory, get off the phone with our sponsor, confess on paper, orally to our sponsor, and agree to take some corrective measures into our life. And as soon as we get up off our knees and hang up the phone, we immediately knee-jerk right back into self-reliance. As if the inventory and the prayer and the speaking to the sponsor never happened. That's called cataloging. Look how beautiful my inventories are. I talk to my sponsor all the time. I just prayed. I'll tell you how long I pray and meditate because I'm a guru. I am Moses. <laughs> but I'm right back into self-reliance. So I don't listen so much to what a man says, but I pay attention to what they do. So we can talk a whole lot. I can talk to you a whole lot. I can give you mechanics. But more importantly, you need to watch what I do and less of what I say. Because that's what happened to me when I was in Minnesota, coming out of my seven treatment center in a halfway house, in a three-quarter house, in a sober house. These AA men and women invited me into their lives, whether it be a diner or into their homes. And I watched them chop wood and carry water. I watched them live this life. I watched them live around this fellowship. I watched them live and talk about God. Going through life, life was problematic. Going through the joys and the sorrows in life, chopping wood and carrying water with a God at the center, seeking God in everything, not just a few things, seeking God when things were not good, seeking God, uh, God when things were good. I watched them in action. I wanted what they had to offer. They were living a sermon that we talk about in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. I like the effect produced by booze. I love the effect produced by God. The question we have to consider is how free do we want to be? What sort of bondage am I experiencing now while I'm not drinking? What sort of fear am I experiencing now while I'm not drinking? I see the world through fear. I hear the world through fear. I speak to the world through fear. My beingness is through fear. My actions are through fear. But when I walk into a meeting, I front real well and tell you I'm joyous, happy, and free, and I'm not. Newcomers have more courage than some of us who are around a long time to say, I'm not good today. But those of us who've been around, Thibault talked about the reconstruction of the ego. The ego insulates me, keeps me from you, and says, no, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm really good, having a great day. But if you can open me up, I look like an emergency room after a riot. I'm a mess, I'm bleeding out. And a guy like me will bleed out from a thousand cuts, that's how I'll die, little by slowly, little by slowly. And the very same thing that took me to God, I can walk away from, and it takes me away from God, because the way we go forwards through the steps, I can go backwards through the steps. What sort of spiritual disciplines am I honestly working with? And by the way, if you're not doing any of this stuff, this is not to split the room, just considerations. That's what this workshop's about. Raise the level of awareness, greatest age for change, how am I doing? What's my relationship with this God really feel like? We can talk about it all day long. Not interested in that, nor is he. What's the relationship look like? Am I worshiping this power, giving attention to this power, practicing fidelity to this power? Do I seek God when things aren't so good? Only when it's good do I seek God. 
As long as I'm awake, as long as I'm breathing, I am blocked from God. I am flawed. I'm weak flesh, sold unto the slavery of sin. That's my condition. I am broken. I am flawed. I will always look for easier, softer way. I will lie when the truth serves. I will steal when it's going to get me in trouble. I will embellish when there's no need to. I will look for attention rather than being humbled. That's my condition. Whether that's alcoholism or just my condition as being a human, I don't know. But it's there. And only with the help of this power called God can little by slowly he fix it in his way and his time. When we surrender to the third step prayer, it's not about, okay, God, I'm going to turn this over. And we have delusions of grandeur that because I do this work, I'm going to get the job now. I'm going to get the relationship. I'm going to get the money. God may take even more. How willing am I to do that, to do this work, to do that walk? I have nothing now. God's going to remove even more if necessary. Yes, to prune the tree, to bear good fruit so others can eat from the vine. That's why we're here. We got sober. I got sober not so I can do a talk like this or have a nice job or drive a nice car. Got sober for one reason. Because he got me sober, this power called God got me sober to get me spiritually fit to go get his kids and stand by the door. Sam Shoemaker, stand by the door. And don't shoot the wounded. The man or woman was in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous for years with a hundred million white chips. That's the real alcoholic, by the way. And shame on us for not offering them the solution when we all he do is, here's my number, give me a call. Don't drink, go to meetings. Make 90 meetings in 90 days. The cat can't make it till midnight. We're giving him 90 meetings in 90 days. How arrogant have we become? And how much hands-off, really, we practice rather than hands-on. Don't move. We got you. Let's go in the back of the room. Let's do one, two, and three right now. We'll start inventory. I saw my sponsor do that with the drunk. It took him two hours to get the guy into five Sent them out after six and seven the next day to make amends. Guy's not drank yet and did jail time. He owed time. He's probably got about 30 years by now. We're talking about God. We're talking about connecting with God and then reconnecting with God and enhancing the experience of this power called God. We can do this work, and I've seen many. Begin to worship the book and worship the information rather than the power. Has this information, this program, programmed my life or transformed my life is the question. Am I sitting here this morning, restless, and discontented, joyous, happy, and free? And am I in a place of resistance or acceptance, in a place of blaming or forgiving and we all know where we are. Some of us are joyous, happy, and free, and everything's good. Great. Sponsor some folks then. Pass that on. Some of us are sitting here looking for that thing in the meeting that's going to set us free. That little connection, that one word. And you might get it, you might not. But God could and would if he was sought. Am I seeking? Sometimes we're around Alcoholics Anonymous a bunch of years and thinking, now I can manage my life because I'm sober double digits. I'm in charge of my life. I'm earning all of this. I've earned my seat, really. Good job. I'm an alcoholic, cannot manage my own life, drunk or sober. That no human power can relieve me of my alcoholism, drunk or sober. And God, what if he was sought, am I seeking? 
No human power can relieve my alcohols. No thing can relieve me of this thing called alcohols and while I'm not drinking. Because alcoholism will go underground and resurface in other areas. They're called sex sprees and food sprees and money sprees and fear sprees and thinking sprees and all sorts of anger sprees. You ever notice anger needs to think and replay and plot? Love doesn't. So I showed up to this work really dying in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was sober six months almost to the day. December 22nd, 1988, and I was thirsty, and I was restless and discontented, to put it mildly. I was acting out every way possible. I could not fill the hole in the soul. I was looking for external conditions to remedy what was in here. I just knew I'm not right. These people in AA seem to be right, but I'm just not right. I got anxiety, I got fear, I'm tossing and turning at night. And on December 22nd, 1988, living in Minnesota, I'm going to go get drunk. I'm going to go get drunk. I don't even care about sobriety anymore. This thing had me again in the palm of its hand. Cunning, baffling, and powerful, impatient. My illness doesn't care I'm sober 28 years, not even impressed. It'll get me in 29 if it wants. Because I'm recovered doesn't mean I'm cured. I can get unrecovered quick. And I was gonna get drunk. And I kept going to the next block, or going to that bar, or going to that liquor store. If someone's, if you see any dealers out, I'll do that. I just, and I kept delaying. God kept delaying and delaying. And I found myself in front of this man's house in Cottage Grove, Minnesota. I was just showed up at his house. He let me in. I told him my tales of woe. You know how newcomers are. You say hello, and four hours later, they're still talking. <laughs> and when I finally paused, he says, where are you with God in the 12 steps, Peter? I never forget my replies, when do you start the steps? And he, without missing the beat, he says, when you stop throwing up, you're late. That disturbed me on the question of alcoholism. I wanted a hug, let's sit down, let's talk about it. Let's read page 449 about acceptance. <laughs> he cared more about my life than my feelings, and I was grateful to this man, I still am. A few months later, I came home to New York, to Brooklyn. And God put some people in my life that were not liked in the fellowship in Brooklyn because they were talking about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. They were sharing from this book their personal experience and they were not liked in the community in AA there. But what, what were they to do, deny God? So when they meet that day, he denies him? They were shouting God from the rooftops like I like to do now if spirit moves me. They were talking about this big book and not apologizing for God, nor were they apologizing for the big book because they were not going to deny someone of a solution or the truth. And I, quite frankly, I'd rather be accused of you tell, telling me I'm telling you the truth than be accused of telling you a lie. And so I showed up to this gentleman, and uh, God put him in my life, and we began a journey through the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was with this sponsor for a neighborhood of 10 years. And I watched right in front of me the spiritual enlightened man who had the answers. You know how the elders are in AA? You present them with the case, they pause, and they give you a consideration. They don't tell you what to do all the time. They give you a consideration, and suddenly the light goes on. Ah, got it. Great teacher. A bulldog of a teacher. All my teachers were like that. But I watched what happened to him when he started to unravel and stop doing the things that got him there, like meditation, like prayer, like inventory, like having a sponsor, being accountable to a sponsor. 
and signing off on his own nonsense. And I watched this man who I adored just completely unravel and rebel against me when I confronted him. And if we get today, he says, who's your sponsor? And we got into an argument. And for me, my life's on the line. I still adore the man. And I owe him so much. But I could not trust the word anymore. I was questioning the direction. And so what do I do? I turn back to God. Father, please, I need a teacher. I will get my own way in a minute. Please show me a teacher. And um, I had been listening to cassette tapes. Newcomers, we had cassettes at one point. <laughs> Remember putting the, 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 the thing in there to unravel? And someone says, you should listen to this guy. And it was a gentleman from Texas, Mark H. And I listened to his talk, and I said, what a pompous, arrogant, nasty individual. And I listened to the tape again. <laughs> and again, and again, and again. And he was up for something called Fellowship of the Spirit with this gentleman, Joe H. And I asked someone he was staying with, can I have some time with Mark? And he set up an appointment for me the next day. And he says, I'm waiting for you. And I said, will you sponsor me? He says, are you ready to have your life turned upside down? The same way if my God said to me, are you willing to die for me? And I say, yes. Because that's happened to me too. No pausing. The only thing God wants is my soul. Am I willing to turn my entire soul? We talk about will and life. The book is very, very kind to us. Turn your thinking and your actions over to God. What, God wants your soul. And something happens when you give God, I give God my soul. He gives me a life. I give him my life. He gives me purpose. I give him my sins. He gives me forgiveness. I give him my drunkenness. He gives me sobriety. I give him my sobriety. He gives me you. He wants my soul. And once I get reconnected in a sense, figuratively speaking, with the soul, the soul knows what it loves, God. And I seek that which my soul loves. And Mark began to work with me all over again. I was one of those guys who sat in a room and believed you go through the work one time into 10, 11, and 12, and you stay there. And if that floats your boat, great. But a lot of folks who do that, I'm one of them, had contempt for people going through the steps over and over again. I've been on both sides of the fence, going through the steps over and over again, revisiting 4 through 9 into 10, 11, and 12, I like a lot better. Like a river flowing, a pure, clean river, flushing out the old and experiencing more of this God, be rid of the things that are blocking me from God, over and over and over again. What a tremendous experience. Maybe I want to go through the steps again and again because I just got lazy and rested on my laurels, but my ego is so big it doesn't tell me that. So I bottomed out. I flatlined in Alcoholics Anonymous, and Mark, we began. I took a look at step one in a way I never saw before. That step one tells a guy, I mean, Pete Marinelli, you are getting drunk, period, non-negotiable. Doesn't make a difference, you're a good guy, a bad guy, money, no money, black, white, doesn't make a difference, you are getting drunk. That's the nature of my condition in step one. And the illness is cunning, baffling, and powerful, and incredibly patient, it'll lay around. And we get hijacked is what happens to us. Leave a meeting, get your chip, everyone loves you, have a cake for you, and on the way home between the meeting to your house, which is two miles, you're in the bar. Or in the hood. 
That wasn't the plan. Coming home from work, go see wifey poo after work, have a nice dinner, a nice intimate evening, watch some uh, TV, gonna be a great night. And on the way home, those are my plans and designs. The analyst says, no, we're gonna get loaded. And I can't stop that. No human power can, nor can a powerful desire. I get hijacked in step one. And I heard people say, think the drink through, play the tape to the end, remember where you come from, keep it green. That's all self-reliance and all coming from my own mind, which is flawed anyway. My mind goes, well, that double vodka looked pretty good. What are they talking about? And I'm in. And step two is a point of solution. As Michael said, step three, we turn everything over to God. And then the work began. Quick story, I remember doing this fourth step for the first time, and I've shared this from so many podiums. I sat down with a notepad and, 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 and uh, pencil and pen and a big book, and I drew out the four columns, made a little master list, and I started to decide who was gonna go on that list and what wasn't gonna go on that list. And then I was getting lazy in the writing. And I looked at the fourth column, I said, they don't really mean you know, uh, selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. Looked at the third column, seemed really complicated. And so I closed the book. And my sponsor said, how's the fourth step going? I was coming along. <laughs> now, I was homeless, living in the back end of an abandoned building. If you know anything about abandoned buildings, you've got rats running around and bugs running around. And I'm filthy. I hadn't bathed, I don't know how long. I had a meal or drank a, a bottle of water. I reeked like the hallway did. Now I'm in this little apartment. I'm sober, I'm clean, clean clothes, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, doing a fourth step, and I noticed there's lint on the rug I should vacuum. <laughs> then I'll do my fourth step. Because I am in an AA, I'm supposed to be clean and sober and have integrity. And if an AA shows up, the rug looks a little. And then I said, well, it's going to be a long night, so I'm going to make a pot of coffee. Because that's what AA does. You know, we do. We drink lots of coffee, and we do big books. I make a pot of coffee. I'm good for about one cup in the morning and a half out of meeting. I start drinking coffee. I look like a crackhead trying to write. My eyes are coming out of my head. I didn't sleep. I didn't write. And that's how that night went. Then I said, I'll make a sandwich. I'll watch some TV. Got to digest my food and go to bed. So now I'm not writing. And when I began to write, I wasn't searching fearless and moral. I could not be searching fearless and moral because I didn't pray before I wrote. And so I hit a wall, and my sponsor read me the riot act, and I'll clean up the language, but he pretty much called me an idiot for not turning to God. You made a decision in three. You don't have the power, you don't have the endurance, you don't have the courage or the strength to be searching fearless and moral. This power must come from God, and that's the connection. In fact, how we do a third step, really, is by putting pen to paper and beginning step four. That's my decision carried out. It can have a permanent effect, my big book tells me, if I take a look at the obstacles in my path. This is the last relationship left. If I don't get this one right, I'm drunk, and when I drink, I'm going to start to die. And so I follow his instructions. He had me write across the top of the page, thank you, God, for allowing me to be searching, fearless, and moral. That was the first move I had to make. Redid my master list and began. Name all my causes. Name all my causes. Got done with that, moved into the third column, and to look, took a look at seven areas of self. My pride. 
No one should see me this way. My personal relationship, how I think the relationship should look. My self-esteem, how I see or feel about myself. My emotional security, which is the thing that keeps me in bondage. What I need from you so I feel okay. That's the bondage piece for me. My ambition, what do I want? My sex relations, conduct. Even how I think a man should be. But sex conduct, they're not being an arbiter on right sex, wrong sex, too much, too little. Conduct. How many people did I take advantage of, put in harm's way because of my selfish and self-seeking needs, wants, desires, my pocketbook, my money. I want to have an American Express card. I want to have a nice house, but I don't want to pay that bill. Just give it to me. No one takes my money. And I looked at this stuff. For example, pride. No one should see me appear less than. No one should see me in, bad, in a bad place. No one should see me with no money. Why? You may not like me. And if you don't like me, you won't be my friend. And if you're not my friend, I'm going to be alone. And if I'm alone, I'm going to feel abandoned. Oh my God, I'm going to die. Same thing with personal relationship, self-esteem, and so on. At the end of the day, it's, oh my God, I'm going to die. And I will do anything to have a relationship. I will hang out with people I normally wouldn't fly over just to have companionship. I will bed down with anyone, anytime, to have companionship just to get through a long, dark night. Because I can't be alone. I don't want to be alone. In fact, the entire inventory, when we take a look at our inventory, we look at resentment, we look at fear, we look at the sex inventory, principles, institutions. When we dump the entire inventory into a funnel, one word squeezes out, fear. And what they had us do is look at fear basically in a few different ways. It's fear. The other thing I've learned, it just happened to me now because I just came out of the other side of the work very recently, is that I gave my sponsor a whole bunch of inventory. All the categories. And the best way I could describe it, as he's giving me considerations in step five, as I'm reading to him, this, this, this big picture was out of focus. And as we kept reading and kept reading, getting through the inventory, he's giving me more considerations, kind of pulling on me every so often, and it's getting in focus. And then we finally got to this one piece of inventory. It was a clear snapshot, the thing in me that was still there. It's old. It's just put on a lot of different masks over the years. So I did all this inventory. Many of us will do all this inventory, pages and pages of inventory to locate the one thing that gets us free. But I don't know which one it is. My job is to put pen to paper. And I need to turn back to this God in order to be searching, fearless, immoral. I stayed with that work the first time, as I said earlier, about 10 years. Mark had me going through the work again. Took a look at one again, took a look at two again, took a completely different angle on step three, things I never heard before. Like, why don't you write out your own interpretation of the third step prayer? Let's talk about your current conception of God. What does that look like on paper? How would you like to see your God in the future? What would that look like? Because there was a point I was really relying upon your God and I was lacking a relationship with mine, my own. Inventory. If you're not doing inventory, you have no idea what you're missing. 
It's like walking into a restaurant when you're really hungry, studying the menu, and then leaving, wondering why you're still hungry. I need to get soul food. And what inventory does is kind of unlock the shackles that have been keeping me in bondage. What inventory does is allow me to be free of the things in me which are blocking me from God so I can finally experience oneness with God rather than separateness from God. And I, now I'm going into prayer differently. I'm going into prayer with a prayer of surrender, a prayer of mercy. I'm not petitioning, but I'm doing a lot more listening. And a complete dependence now upon God. Not God and something else. God and him. God and her. God and my job and my money. There's just God. There's no other. Where I am this morning is I can safely say, as of today, complete dependence upon this God. Complete trust in this God. A spiritual walk. To walk in gratitude with God. It's easy to be grateful when a banquet's prepared for you. What about when hard times come? Can I still walk in the spirit of gratitude with God, knowing he's moving the pieces on the chessboard? And even though I might say, God, this is a bad move, he knows the end of the game. And just trust. There's a great story of the Zen master who's on a snow-covered field with the pupil, and he says, walk and make a path. And he says, master, there is no path. He says, walk, and when you look behind you, you will see the path. Am I willing to do a walk like that? A narrow road through a narrow gate to which I'm about to pass, which means all the things I came into AA with has to go. The things I've accumulated in AA have to go. And step forward is going to do it. And the things I come into AA with, not only the material things, it's the things up in the head. Because I see the world through the mind, I hear the world through the mind, I speak to, to the world through the mind. My actions, all born in thought, come from the mind. Fear-based, insecure, egotistical, I don't care how long we're around. Unless we experience, for me, uh, a oneness with God, I'm running on me. Right? Think about this for a minute. How many folks, uh, I always like to do this, how many folks drove to this meeting alone in the car? Okay, so you're all lying, and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> if you think about the drive here that you say you were alone in the car, how many people were you talking to in your head on the way over here? You had about 45 people in the back seat. Arguing, negotiating. How are you going to take over the AA soon? They're going to nominate you president. How come Danny asked me to speak? I'm the most spiritual one in the room. I can't believe I'm even going to this stupid thing. <laughs> Hope I meet him or her there. Now, the sad news is when you get back in the car, there's 45 people in the back seat going, what kind of nonsense is this? All day in this thing? <laughs> and then they follow you home, and they tuck you in. You ever notice as soon as you wake up in the morning, as soon as you wake up, you're in the middle of a thought. You say, there's a problem, there's a situation as soon as my eyes open. Because the mind is still going. You just wake up, we got a problem. And we join right in. Sure, problems, that's me, let's go. <laughs> How many times do we sit down at our kitchen table for the first cup of coffee? And you think you're sitting at the kitchen table just you and your cup of coffee. But right next to you is Moses, the AA guy, 
or Mother Teresa telling you, God, you're so spiritual. And we're going to work with our sponsees today. We're going to call the sponsor. I'm going to reread the big book. I'm going to stop going to church. I'm going to study the Bible because I'm going to and I'm enlighten you in being and everyone needs me. Then you get the lover right next to him who says, the heck with all of this. We need a date. Then you get the jock who says, we have to work out. Go to the gym, get in shape. You got the entrepreneur guy who's attached to money, who will do anything to get money. Then you got the son of the parents and the parent of the son. They're at the table. And they're all talking to us at once. And we're in conversation with all of them. Negotiating, arguing, all the stuff's going on. That's why when you ask an alcoholic, how are you doing? You go, oh my God, I'm so tired. <laughs> you don't have a job. Why are you tired? <laughs> walk into a meeting like, you walk in like this. How are you doing? I'm great. Everything's beautiful. <clears throat> There's one other voice sitting at that kitchen table, by the way. And this is the voice that cuts through everything. This is the voice that gives us guidance. This is that gauge, that GPS inside of us that says, call your sponsor. This is the voice that says, let's pray some more. This is the voice that says, don't worry about money, I got you. This is the voice that says, let's be a servant. That's the godly voice. You know what we do with that one? Would you please shut up? I got people to talk to here. There's something that goes on, and I want to be careful with traditions, but it's a sermon on the offense of the cross. We can bring that into AA, the offense of God. You know why I don't like big book meetings? You know why I don't like the godly meetings, the spiritual meetings? Because they're a reminder of how ungodly I've been behaving and how untreated I really am. And I'm totally relying upon self-reliance, me and my ego. And they're talking about God-reliance and humility. And that is this thing that shows up. I want no part of that. The illness doesn't want to hear a workshop like this. The illness doesn't want to hear anything about spirituality. So if we get uncomfortable, disturbed during a workshop like this, you've just met your ego. We've just met our illness in neon lights it can't hard. This illness is the worst poker player on the planet if we're spiritually fit. We see its hand every time. But when I'm untreated in Alcoholics Anonymous, we lose in poker all the time. Complete dependence upon God. So the first time I do a third step, it's not like the one I did now. The first one I did out of desperation. And my first fourth step inventory was out of desperation. I had no idea the direction I was going. I was just following directions. Where God has brought me to, especially with serving others, I get what they're asking me in step three. That after 28 years, a lot of failures, some accomplishments. That whole thing has to go back to God, which means God might say, in the business you're in, we're out. The money you've earned, gone. You live in Florida, we're moving. You don't like cold weather, we're moving. Up north. You like cold weather, we're moving south. None of my business. My recovery is none of my business, nor is my life. That was one of the things that was made clear, abundantly clear to me, including this last time going through work. As soon as I put my hands on a wheel, thinking I'm in charge of something, I'm headed for a brick wall. Because it might not be aligned with God's will, and I need to play by someone else's rules, his rule, and align my will with God. Or I'm out of line. When I was growing up, the elders would tell us, hey, kid, you're out of line. Which meant you're about to get in trouble. You're out of line. They were telling me in a nice way, behave. 
It's the same thing on the spiritual walk. Am I in line with God's will or out of line with God's will? Because if I'm out of line with God's will and we know it in here, I'm headed for trouble. Self-reliance, unmanageability, current agnosticism, fear. It's a vicious cycle. I play off of each one. So I write my resentment inventory. I write my fear inventory. I write my sex inventory. By the way, the first time I did sex inventory, I'm reading it to my sponsor, resentment and fears, big letters. You can see it from four blocks away. Then I got to sex inventory. I needed seven magnifying glasses to see what I wrote. <laughs> I couldn't see anything. <clears throat> he said to me, how much shame and embarrassment are you experiencing right now? He said, I want you to go home and write inventory, fear inventory on sharing this. He's a very wise man. And I finally finished. I listed principles, institutions. I remember my anger towards my religious community because they didn't save mom. Mom went to church. Mom believed in the carpenter. Mom told me he loves me. And my mom was an alcoholic and an addict and committed suicide. Church was in my crosshairs. I was furious. Venom towards the medical community because all they did was medicate her when she didn't need to be medicated anymore. Gave her bottles, prescriptions for bottles of pills. I was furious with them. The police department, I was furious with them as an institution because they always, almost beat my dad to death in 1962. I remember driving by Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn. My dad was in hospital for six months. I hated policemen as an institution. They beat people up. Hated them. And you know, it's funny, when I would see a police car drive by, there was a part of me that wanted to be friendly with them. But there's another part of me that said, stay away from them because they will beat you to death. This was a problem. My ideas about women, a woman's place was in the home. That's what I was brought up with. I remember my very first girlfriend was a valedictorian at John Dewey High School, went on to NYU, graduated with honors, is very successful. When she said she was going to college, I said, there's something wrong with this woman. Women don't go to college. That was my thinking. Those were my belief systems in 1977. Belief systems and fears, so much of it is just acquired and we buy into it. And we believe that's who we be when it isn't who we be. It's not God's plan. All that stuff had to come down. Our book says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. How often does it look like this? Rarely have we seen a person thoroughly follow our path. Hmm? We're good at talking about our problems, but how often am I, you know, going to God with them? It says, having made our personal inventory, have this fourth step. What are we going to do about it? We've been trying to get a new attitude and a new relationship with our creator. Well, I might have a good attitude about God, an open-mindedness about God, a willing to take direction about God, but I'm going to be made new again. And a new relationship, I might be praying to God and have somewhat of a relationship, maybe not where we are after so many years of being in this deal, but we're going to get it new, refreshed, enhanced. We're going to grow with this God. And it comes a point in our life where we have dependence and trust and we love the effect produced by God. I want more God. When I drink, I want more drink. I'm not going to come in here and put a lid on how much God I'm getting. I need to be a seeker. 
It says, we've, uh, we've admitted certain defects, have ascertained in a rough way what the trouble is. We put our finger, finger on the weak items in our personal inventory. These are about to be cast out. So I'm not going to work on these defects when they show up. In fact, one of the biggest defects I can have is believing I can work on my own defects. I'll deal with my defects. No, they're going to deal with me. It tells me if I skip this vital step, I may not overcome drinking. Simply put, if I don't do a fifth, I'm going to drink one. It's a clear-cut warning in my big book. If I don't do this step, I'm not overcoming drinking. It means the time and place is going to come. I'm going to get so thirsty. I'm going to get drunk or experience a strange mental blind spot where everything's good. The goose hung high and I'm in a bar. I got a buddy of mine in Staten Island had about seven or nine years sober. Walked into a bodega on Housen Street, got a six-pack, got drunk, wound up, went to a blackout, comes out of a snowstorm in Detroit, stuck in a limousine. Has no idea how we got there. Sober that many years, but no spiritual muscles. Speaking about that, we like to go to the gym. We like to work out, watch what we eat, right? Careful what kind of hydrate ourselves, get the right tan, because we're in South Florida, got to look good. Spend about eight hours on the hair, the beard, the whole thing, clothes match, this matches this, everything's good. Oh, we look good on the outside. But what about the spiritual gym? What am I doing for the soul? What am I doing for my soul food? Because at the end of the day, it's the only thing that counts. It says I must be entirely honest with somebody if I expect to live long and happily in this world. It says when we decide to who's, here, who's to hear our story, I waste no time. I have a written inventory. I'm prepared for a long talk. I explain to my partner what we're about to do and why we have to do it. They know. It says we're engaged upon a life and death errand. Think about this for a minute. The book is telling us we're engaged upon a life and death errand. Very graphic. Very powerful word, life and death. So when I'm hearing a fifth step or I'm sharing my fourth step in the fifth step process, this is life and death for me, regardless of how long I'm sober. I get that at a gut level. I just need to share a quick story with you on what happened um, when I went through the work. This was about two sessions ago, going through the work with my current sponsor, Mickey M. I'm reading inventory, and this is the thing that gets you free. You read all this inventory, and there's one piece that sets you free. When we finally get to experience truth, you know, we've all heard, know the truth and the truth will set you free. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. It begs the question, what is the truth? The truth is God. Know God and you will be set free. In order for me to know and experience God, I need to get rid of the things that are blocking me from this God. Experience real oneness. But I don't know which one it is. What peace in that inventory is going to set me free? So I'm reading uh, my inventory to my sponsor. And it came to institutions. I still had it in for my religious community. I'm a Catholic, my Catholic church. You know, some of the headlines we've all read over the years. I would go to church, not mass, and light these two candles forever. Been doing that forever. And I like going in when Noah's in there and me talking to God in his house, lighting candles. And I would go to Mass, not go to Mass, go to Mass. I take everyone's inventory. The priest is not doing it right. I should be speaking. They should ask me to do it. <laughs> but I had some contempt. I was still angry that they didn't save my mom. 
I felt a lot of hypocrisy, a lot of bureaucracy. I had this stuff. And I'm reading this to my sponsor, Mickey, and it became so matter-of-fact now. You know, you get a splinter in your finger, and at first it hurts, and after a week it's still there, and you kind of ignore it. But it's still there. And so I'm reading this inventory, institutions, Catholic Church, cause, effects, ram and fall, and um, kept reading the second column, got in the third and fourth column. My sponsor says, hold it. Hold up. That's a bad thing when your sponsor says that to you. It means you're in trouble. And uh, he says, how long you've been ha have this resentment? And since when have you gotten so arrogant that you can walk around with this, this resentment, the number one offender? How long has this been going on? And I tried to negotiate with him about this. And uh, he asked me some questions like a good teacher would. He didn't argue with me. He just gave me some considerations. And they sounded something like this. Peter, do you go to Alcoholics Anonymous? He says, yes. Is every meeting you go to a healthy meeting? I says, well, no. Some meetings miss the mark. Some meetings got 13 steppers in them. Some meetings, people are trying to get business in there and get jobs. And it goes on and on. He says, but you keep going back. Says, yeah. And you keep trying to practice a solution. Yeah. And you have a spirit of love and tolerance and acceptance for others. Yes. Then he says, how come you can't do that with your church? And I had no answer. None. I'm a hypocrite. Because I'm talking about the grace of God. There's a difference between having the grace of God and experiencing that power which gives me grace. I'm talking about this God, this God, this God, but I'm not willing to go to his house. Ask me to speak on Sunday morning and drive two hours for a group anniversary. I go road trip. This is great. Ask me to drive 20 minutes on a Sunday morning whenever your house of worship declares a meeting. Oh, I'm busy. Can't make it. You having a barbecue, I'll be there. Let's go to your father's house for a half hour, an hour. <laughs> Ten minute drive. I can't do it, I'm busy. And yet, I go to him every day and ask him for sobriety. I ask him for health. I ask him for prosperity. I ask him to be of service. But God forbid I should walk into his house and say, hey, thank you. Oh, it's a little extreme. And my sponsor out of that fifth step said, you need to go and make amends. You need to go back to your church. I'm going to sit with the priest and make amends. And it's just what I did. And the priest said, when I asked him, what can I do to make it right? Can you come to Mass tomorrow? My whole life changed. Because I showed up for Mass. My entire life changed. I'm a member of good standing, an active member in my church. Now, I can't, I can't even think of how I did it so long without it, how dark it was before the dawn. More pruning of the tree. God said, the ground's fertile now. Now you need to see some more truth. Now you're ready. What would have happened if I missed the inventory? If I didn't write that piece of inventory and if I didn't share it with the sponsor, I'd still have that hole in the soul, a little piece of it, little tiny piece. But it's like having a little tiny piece of cancer. It's gonna kill me if I don't take corrective measures. And there it was out of a piece of inventory, an enlightened teacher to get more right with God, to have this new relationship with God, and let God take me to where he needs to take me. And every time I've got done with the fifth step, we have some uh, uh, promises on page 75, and I'm just going to share them and get out of here. It says, once having taken this step, withholding nothing. Have I withheld anything? Got some take it to the grave stuff. 
I'm delighted. I can look the world in the eye. I could be alone at perfect peace and ease. My fears fall from me. I begin to fear the nearness of my creator. I may have had certain spiritual beliefs, the infancy of them. Now I begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problems disappear will often come strongly. I feel I'm on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Connectedness, not separateness. The drink problem has disappeared. Those fifth step promises may not pop as soon as we get done with the fifth step, but they're going to be experienced because my big book has not lied to me yet. And when I'm done with the fifth step, we get the quiet hour time. It's the only time the book says take an hour, but we're going to be busy during that hour, making prayer, thanking God from the bottom of heart that we know him better answering some more questions. Is all the stones properly in place? Second step stone, third step stone. Am I clear? Have I skipped anything in that fourth step? Have I tried to uh, get past something in step five with my sponsors? Everything as far as I can see, good to move on. Do some meditation. And then the hour's up and we move into six and seven. That's all I got, peace. Thank you very much, Peter.